2: Ladies and gentlemen, I'm Matt Belinsky, and this is The Prevailing Narrative. So, a wise man once said, Men of action are favored by the goddess of luck. And I'm today with a man who uh, hopefully has the goddess of luck on his side, as he is a man of action, a gentleman named John Elist. So, I'd spoken with John around the holidays, and, and he and I found each other to be like minds about a number of things going wrong with the state of California and Los Angeles. And he mentioned casually the potential of a, a run uh, for a California Senate in California. Um, and this seems something fairly far-fetched, because he had no career in politics and whatnot, but I I certainly don't write off anyone, particularly anyone who seemed as competent as John was, and he went ahead and ran. He is someone who looked around at his uh, surroundings and circumstances, didn't like what he saw, and instead of just bitching about it, he went and did something about it and is running for Senate in California, uh, trying to uh, uh, unseat California State Senator Alex Padilla. John is here with us today. John, uh, thanks so much for joining us.
1: Thanks so much for having me, Matt
2: my pleasure so uh, listen we, we're gonna go into many details about what's been going on or going wrong with the state of California but it can all be kind of encapsulated by the fact that uh, only two years on record has there been net outflow migration away from the state of California meaning more people leaving than people coming those two years were the last two years okay if anything doesn't signal that something is rotten in Denmark that that certainly does so John um, as you, before, when what animated your decision to take this action, tell us a little bit about what you saw, how it made you feel, what your reaction was, and what were your observations that led to this decision?
1: No, 100%. I mean, you got it right. I grew up in California, just like you. And the California of today is pretty much unrecognizable from what we saw growing up. And, you know, my parents came from Iran. I'm the son of immigrants. And a lot of the reason that immigrants, came to the U.S., to California in particular, was because California was always seen as the land of opportunity. Um, And that unfortunately is no longer the case when we have rising inflation, gas prices, homelessness, crime, terrible educational outcomes. Uh, These are all the direct results of one party rule that we've essentially had for a generation in California. And so the argument I've made to people is it doesn't really matter what your party preference is. Anytime you have consolidation of political power in one party, There, you lack transparency. You lack accountability. And that doesn't serve any voters.
2: Nobody to keep them honest.
1: That's right. That's right. Yeah.
2: Um, So love to dig a little bit deeper into the actual decision to run, because this is something that is very unique. Think about how many people, once again, look around at their surroundings. They they uh lament the bums that are in office, want to throw them out, but they don't go ahead and actually decide to run for a statewide office in the largest state in the country. Um, think and get, give, us a, give us a little bit of insight into the mechanics of investigating this decision and making this decision yourself and how, what your approach was.
1: Yeah. So I was looking for different opportunities where we could really go after the one party rule and give voters a viable option. Mm-hmm. And when I looked at this Senate race in particular, I saw that there was no major candidate that was challenging the appointed incumbent, Alex Padilla.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And, you know, the, the prevailing wisdom, if you will, is that Alex Padilla is someone who's very connected to California politics, mm-hmm. uh, has governmental experience, and because he's Latino, um, taps into a large portion of the population. And so people say, well, you know, it, it's, it's impossible to beat someone of his profile, and honestly, I called BS. I think somebody that has 25 years of working in California politics as a career politician, that's a huge liability to the cycle because of all the things we talked about before. Mm-hmm. And so then when I looked at the list of challengers, I saw that no one was really treating this race seriously. Mm-hmm. You would think that a congressman, a mayor, you know someone would be running in opposition because you know, a Senate seat is, is, uh, is a pretty big deal. In sure. um, most states you'll see, like in Pennsylvania last night with the primary, that was a contested election on both sides of the aisle. Mm-hmm. But we don't really have that in California. And that's a travesty for, for voters. And so that was that was the logic. Uh, once I saw that opportunity and saw that no major candidate was entering the race, that's when I started reaching out to various contacts and networks to say, all right, who are some of the experienced folks that can work with me to really build a campaign in a relatively short amount of time to get the mm-hmm. word out there, the messaging out there?
2: So there's an entire industry here, no matter how much of, let's call it a populist grassroots campaign, you, you have to employ these people. And I think people don't understand how how this works. Maybe if you could give us a little bit of the plumbing here on if somebody wants to run for office Who are are the players? How do they have to go about this? And what does that say about the system that they are that these are people who make their livelihood on this? Right. So that's they're crossing over from one side to the other. They are working on campaigns that seemingly contradictory purposes. And I think that colors a lot of our political economy that I think people don't really understand.
1: No, that's that's exactly right. There is an entire industry and I wasn't familiar with it until I dove into it. It it all starts with the campaign manager or the campaign strategist that you're working with. They essentially become kind of like a general contractor if you're going in a construction project. And then there are a whole set of subcontractors that end up working with that general contractor. I was very fortunate to find someone that sort of thinks outside of the box and was willing to take the chance on a first-time candidate running for such an ambitious office. He Mm -hmm. saw the vision, and as soon as that happened, it was was, uh, like a marriage made in heaven. Um, Mm -hmm. but a lot of times candidates who are not the most sophisticated when it comes to business decisions and whatnot, um, really get taken kind of, uh, they're, they're right to it. So I've seen, for example, pitches where they'll pay 25, 30, 35 cents, a text message to be sent out to voters. Mm -hmm. And if anyone who has done digital marketing before has worked in a business, you realize that it really should be a fraction of that. Mm -hmm. Um, but unfortunately, because of the dynamics and the way it works in politics and some of the requirements of FEC reporting and whatnot, you end up with a situation where these candidates end up spending more. And that's that is really bad for the entire system, because mm-hmm. this is why candidates end up spending so much time fundraising as opposed to spending time with voters, you know, getting up to snuff on all the different policy issues um, and and the things that you would expect candidates to do. Yeah. Uh,
2: and, and here's not to hate on every political consultant out there hey you're working with some and, and they seem to be uh, doing a great job for you but um man there, there is a graveyard littered with you know cases of, of advisors and consultants taking politicians for a ride and I mean their reputation is very much um uh, as they're looking to prosper and and they treat this as a business and that does play into the overall cost if you want to get money out of politics well okay you got to create a, a playing field where a candidate doesn't necessarily need to rely on anyone who's trying to uh, rely on a vendor. These are vendors. These are people who are running businesses, consultants, and that, that certainly plays into it.
1: No, 100%. And you would think that with the advent of social media, digital marketing, that things should get cheaper. It's actually more effective to get your messaging out there because you have all these different platforms that didn't exist 15, 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. But if anything, just gotten more expensive because I think there are consultants out there that kind of prey upon the confusion yeah, um, and sort of add all these bells and whistles and all these extra costs. But, yeah, at the end of the day, it's, once, it's really the yeah,
2: book. Yeah, once they sent the, set, set the market rates and their expectations for, okay, this is how much I should earn based on this level of a campaign, it's hard to undercut that. And you know, there's not much downward pressure on that. Um, But it must be a fascinating experience, and once again, getting to see under the hood and understand why campaigns are run how they are and why politicians make the decisions that they do, it's not always informed by necessarily what you might think, both for good and for bad. It's not necessarily informed by their most sincere, genuine, and altruistic uh, instincts, and it's also not this wide-ranging conspiracy where they're colluding with these other sinister powers, malicious powers behind closed doors. Sometimes, no, it's just what was most reflected of some consultant. Who might be beholden to one of their buddies at another consultancy or some think tank and they told them to do X Y or Z And, and it, it really I think it would be interesting and illuminating for people to understand that that's what's going on behind closed doors Okay, So let's get a into, into uh, some of the specifics about you know your candidacy and your view on things going on in California Because these are issues that really run down Run down the chain, right? Of all the uh, all the political decisions and elections that we're facing here in California and Los Angeles. So obviously, crime and homelessness on everybody's mind, very much the forefront. Certainly for candidates that are leaning either Republican, leaning more to the right, um, and even you're finding in a lot of these races, Democrats, where where a Democrat versus Democrat race, where this is still the playing field. These are still the key the the key issues, regardless of who's running, right? Um, so um, crime. You know, you and I have connected on the Gascon recall, certainly uh, cognizant and abreast of how these decarcerationist, pseudo reformist policies have really done harm to public safety infrastructure and apparatus here in California. Um, Tell us about what, you know, what your thoughts are to change it, what you can do just one policy wise, but two messaging wise, because sometimes just about the right voice being the loud voice.
1: A hundred percent. And on that last one, that's a really, really important point, because. A U.S. senator has a platform, has a voice that can be quite powerful in terms of being able to affect change, even mm-hmm. if it's not legislatively directly in the Senate. And so for one, I think California could really use a senator that's willing to go out there and say that Chesa Boudin up in San Francisco and George S. Khan should be recalled. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, right now, we've got an appointed senator that is completely silent on those issues just because it probably makes him feel uncomfortable within the Democratic establishment to go against some of these progressive
2: DAs. And and that's that's it, right, in that there's a machine. A guy like Alex Padilla, he was Secretary of State before he was, and Secretary of State's a bit of a a rubber stamp, you you know, pretty much the most prominent function of the Secretary of State in a state like California is that his name is on all the documents when someone files for a company, an LLC, a corporation, whatnot. That's where I saw first encountered Alex Padilla's name. But he's clearly part of a system. And once you're part of a system, you don't want to go against the system, right? And if the system pops out of Georgia Gascon or a Boudin or Gavin Newsom even um you're very much going to be hesitant no matter what the problems are to to label them the the cause of them. Um so has he ha, how has he commented on the crime issue at all? I mean has he engaged any well you, that's your observation that there were no other candidates, right? To what extent has he engaged on this issue?
1: Yeah, so I think that one of the one of the fascinating aspects is anytime there's an issue that presents itself, whether it's crime or homelessness, the knee jerk reaction is just to say, "Oh, well, we need more funding to be able to solve it." Mm-hmm. And I don't think that that's the answer, right? I mean, we can throw double, triple the amount of money that we're throwing into homelessness, and we're throwing a ton of resources at mm-hmm. the federal, state, county, city level. Yeah, and we see in California that it's only gotten worse. I mean, we now have a nearly hundred billion dollar surplus in the state. So. I've always argued that this isn't a resources problem; it's a leadership problem. We've just had completely misguided policy that has been ruining the state, and you know, at the county level as well. Because and and
2: before states- we get to your your solutions and the leadership issue that you just mentioned, I think we people need to understand. Uh, how much money we've spent on this stuff, right? That it it can't be a money issue because we're spending more than anybody. Mental health, substance abuse, homelessness. I mean, we've been throwing money at it for so long. If money was going to solve it, it seems like money would have solved it.
1: That's exactly right. And you're seeing the level of waste that's happening, for example, on the homelessness issue, Mm -hmm. where the LA controller came out saying that the cost of building an affordable housing unit is about $830,000 a unit. I want
2: you to repeat that. (laughs) $830,000
1: $830,000 a unit. I mean, that's on par with to build the most one affordable money.
2: housing unit. Yeah. Yeah. You go buy them a nice condo. Oh, yeah. You know.
1: So we know that the money's not being spent well, but even on the programs that they're spending it on, it's just not working because we're not getting the results that we all expect. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, on the crime issue, I think fundamentally one of the big things, and I know Matt, you called this out early on, the passage of Proposition 47 back in 2014, there's a mm-hmm. direct line between the crime that we're experiencing now and what happened in 2014, backed mm-hmm. by, you know, George Gascon. Sure. Um, as soon as we removed the accountability in our criminal justice system, this is where kind of, uh, you know, it, it, it was uh, it was impossible for us to put the, the, the genie back in the bottle. I yeah. Mean, what we need to do at this point is make sure that criminals are held to account. Um, And if the DAs at the county level won't do it, one of the amazing parts of the federal government is that the U.S. Attorney's Office Mm -hmm. is able to step in and prosecute those criminals. Uh, And we've seen it happen before. We have seen
2: that happen a couple times. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about how that works. So
1: both the U.S. Attorney's Office and the attorneys that work for the Attorney General of the state of California have the ability to supersede the county prosecutors and take over a case.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And it doesn't happen all that often because you assume that if a county DA is doing their job, that they're prosecuting criminals in line with uh, long-held standards and Mm -hmm. hold the account. Unfortunately, as we've seen, that hasn't been happening at the county level. And so on a couple pretty egregious cases, the U.S. Attorney's Office has stepped in. And so that's an area where a senator at the federal level can work with the Department of Justice to ensure that that's happening more often. I mean, I hope that after 2022, we'll have an attorney general in California uh, Mm -hmm. that's gonna be doing that at the state level, but if not, then at the very least, the federal government should be stepping
2: and in. And so, the, the a senator can, I, I assume, use the bully pulpit to persuade um, the state attorney general or someone at the federal level. It's no, cannot directly instruct anyone to take on a case. But if uh, uh, if the federal representatives are in lockstep, the the likelihood of it happening is a lot higher. Would that be correct? That's that, that's
1: it. right. And we can ensure that the resources are directed to the Department of Justice, for example, mm-hmm. to to make sure that these prosecutors have the resources they need to pursue those cases.
2: Mm-hmm. Okay. So on Prop okay Prop 47, that is a state assembly issue, correct? I mean, unless we put it back up for referendum and had the people vote on it again. I mean, the state assembly has to vote on it and has voted on it. Kevin Kiley, who's another person that I've supported quite a bit, he's put that, you know, the reversal of Prop 47 up for vote a number of times. The state legislature just doesn't seem to think it's a problem that we've legalized theft under $950. Um, how do you, you know, what path do you see to reversing Prop 47, right? I mean, imagine, yes, if you, if you were victorious, um, you would be loud and proud about reversing it. I mean, to what extent, in looking at the state assembly now, it's makeup or it's likely makeup next year. Is there any chance that these people find religion on this and understand that this is something that, that is ill-conceived and is having inevitable results?
1: So I think the Proposition 47 is sort of... um it's a symptom of a larger problem. And the problem that we're experiencing is the lack of a viable opposition in this state, right? Kevin is out there fighting the good fight. Kevin mm-hmm. Kiley would be a lot more effective if he had like-minded assembly members and senators in Sacramento working with him. And unfortunately yeah. that's not the case because right now the Republicans have super minorities over there. Uh, mm-hmm. And their voice has been very, very much diminished. I. Mm-hmm. The issue with the status quo right now is that unless they feel genuine pressure to change things, it's never going to happen. And so I, I think you know part of, the, part of the rationale for my campaign is to start to build up the loyal opposition, if you will, in the state of California. Right now, the Republicans, unfortunately, have not been putting up candidates that can speak to and resonate with the majority of voters in the state of California, obviously because Republicans haven't held statewide office in this state in pretty much a generation. So Mm -hmm. something is going wrong when you don't have the ability for the opposing party to have any levers of power whatsoever. Mm -hmm. But I also, I mean, part of it is also the Republicans because they've had such a massive messaging problem. You, You talk to most people and you say, you know, do you agree with the outcomes of Proposition 47? Do Mm -hmm. you agree that we got what we needed from the higher taxes we've been paying with regard to the homelessness issue? Mm -hmm. You know, these are all just the overall question of do you think California has been heading in the right direction? Sixty percent of Californians are saying no. So again and again on these various issues, people are siding with the opposition. They just don't know it and they can't get past the mental leap of saying vote for someone
2: else absolutely and the republicans have to take responsibility you know as a trailing liability during their messaging during the 2000s and the early 2010s and they were really putting up uh, uh, they were putting up candidates that were more focused on nationally oriented nonsense and and you know team loyalty and tribal antics than the hard and fast material reality of governing in the state of california and they they've paid the price and we've paid the price for that i think i, I, th- I always go back to carly fiorina she was wondering, running for governor right or was it senate you know Yeah. Yeah. And I just, she kept on spouting off all. She she was approaching this like she was Mitch McConnell. It's like, sorry, Carly, you don't live in Kentucky. Like, this messaging, these bromides that you keep on, you know, and these 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 bromides and these platitudes that you keep on rolling out, like, great. You know, they're going to get you some claps on the back from God knows who in Kentucky. They don't, they don't mean anything to anybody here, and I think a lot of um, the reason that we have such one-sided uh, political uh, political economy here in California is because the Republicans just tried to appeal to national interest instead of local ones, and I think they've uh, they have a real opportunity in, once again, that seems to be the mistake that the Democrats are making, particularly a guy named Gavin Newsom, who we'll get to in a second, by focusing on issues of national interest as opposed to local interest, um, but you know, refocusing locally because maybe it was maybe it was uh, a. a uh, a function of things being too good. When things were too good, everybody uh, kind of got lost in the shuffle of, of meaningless, you know, uh, issues of low relevance. But now that people are concerned about the quality of life here, it's local, local, local. Um, so going to uh, to that point, you know, Gavin Newsom. Um, Gavin Newsom, having survived a recall in stunning fashion last year, uh, is running one—you know—running once again. Pretty, it seems to have his race sewn up. But there is an outside candidate who is coming in and causing a bit of a stir. A guy named Mike Schellenberger. I mean, you know, I don't want to get too deep into the the weeds of the governor's race, but you know, what's your perspective here on an independent who does seem to come from a more liberal foundation, causing a stir and starting to bring together an interesting coalition of people um, who have never. Really, voted together in California. You know, people are concerned about the homeless problem, but might look towards some more traditionally progressive solutions. Um, nuclear energy advocates, but then you know, people who are also very socially liberal. I mean, you know, what what have your observations been about another upstart candidate taking on an entrenched power here from the California political system?
1: Yeah, look, it, it's a great question, and it actually speaks to some of the stuff we were talking about before in terms of you know going under the hood and understanding the motivations of candidates because one of the first decisions that you as a candidate have to make is, are you going to side with a party or not? And if mm-hmm. you're side with a party, which party are you going to go with? Um, and so obviously Mike Schellenberger has made the decision to go independent or no party preference as they call it here. Um, whereas, you know, you obviously have other Democrats and Republicans that are running as well.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: The, the issue right now, you know, the, the, the prevailing wisdom right now, when it comes to no party preference is that it's very, very difficult to make it, one, past the primaries, but two, past the general as well. Mm-hmm. And a couple of case studies that people point to. In 2014, uh, Dan Schnur, who's a professor out of USC, very well-respected guy, um, ran for Secretary of State uh, against, ultimately, Alex Padilla. And unfortunately, he couldn't make it past the primary uh, when he ran as a no-party preference candidate, mm-hmm. despite the fact that he probably had some of the best ideas uh, going into the race. Similar situation in 2018, uh, Steve Poisner, who was previously insurance commissioner and was a Republican, mm-hmm. decided to run as a no party preference candidate. Um, and w- he had a ton of resources. He's, he's personally very, very wealthy and could put a ton of resources behind it a- and still couldn't win in the general. Mm-hmm. And so I think one of the major questions that voters have to ask themselves is, do you think that a no party preference candidate is going to make it through because that's going to color their decisions on the rest of the ballot as well. You you definitely have some no party preference folks up and down. Mm -hmm. You know, I've been an independent politically for most of my life.
2: Yeah, I was going to ask uh-huh. what what informed your decision, because you are certainly, you know, if you're if we're looking at the cohort of just Republicans, far more liberal and moderate, and you're definitely uh, towards the m- most liberal deviation of the Republicans. So what informed your decision to run, you know, affiliated with the party as opposed to independently?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, honestly, I'd say it's 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 less liberal or moderate. It's just really common sense that sure. uh, I, I, I try to come at it with. But You know, the issue was exactly what I laid out. It's very difficult to get out of the primaries without a ton of resources and a ton of name ID Mm -hmm. if you're running as a candidate. Uh, Voters just tend to gravitate towards seeing that D or that R next to someone's name, because if you don't have the opportunity through just a ton of resources to get your messaging out, it's very difficult for voters to know where do you stand Mm -hmm. on where are your priorities? Now, my campaign certainly has a nuanced message to it. And, you know, I think that nuance will hopefully come into much more play as we get into the general mm-hmm. for sure. Um, but that was a lot of the rationale for why. So I people to go.
2: really do just react to the signal. They react to the signal of seeing a party affiliation.
1: Yeah. Uh, that's that's right. Yeah. And so that's what that's my fear with Schellenberger. I think he has some fantastic ideas. I agree with him on a lot of, mm-hmm. of what posing. Um, and I certainly think that the the system could use, you know, a real jolt, especially coming from an independent side. Mm-hmm. Um, we just haven't seen it work historically. Now, Schellenberger may prove it wrong mm-hmm. because he's got quite a bit of a Twitter following. I know he was on Joe Rogan. Even Tucker Carlson yeah. was saying program that I'd vote for you. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's amazing momentum. And I sure, I'm rooting for him to prove us wrong um, yeah. in terms of an independent making it through.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it, he do, his independent candidacy does feel a little different because he has pre-existing name recognition and because he seems to be so aggressively courting and it there seems to be like I said this unique uniquely diverse set of people who are receptive to him right and truly like it seems to be the what the blueprint would be for an independent candidate because that's the whole idea that all these people who aren't finding what they're satisfied with otherwise go to uh, uh, find an alternative lane right and he really seems to be seems to be occupying that alternative lane fully um so uh, uh yeah, I couldn't agree more no doubt no doubt and want to see his want to see you know where his candidacy takes him um a little more tangibly and we'll have more of the prevailing narrative after the break So the number one issue on your website under uh, under campaign issues is the economy and inflation. You're a business person yourself. Very successful medical device company. Um, Inflation really is on everybody's mind. And if it's not, it's going to be as it's probably affecting their lives in ways they haven't really realized yet. So right. this is something as a senator that you would be, you know, directly involved in, in in solving. Um, and inflation is a bit of a, of a opaque issue. It's a little, a little difficult for people to understand. I mean, other than the kind of uh, linear cause and effect of the government printing money, but that's not the entirety of the situation. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about your views on inflation, what the causes have been, what the outlook is and what the potential solutions are.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So like you said, inflation is sort of multifaceted. There is monetary policy that comes from the Federal Reserve that uh, that informs it, of course. But Congress also has a role in terms of the fiscal stimulation that they can provide uh, to the economy. Mm-hmm. And I think economists, including some economists that worked with, under the Obama administration, have come to the realization that the overstimulus of the economy that we did last year, the $1.9 trillion dollar Fiscal bomb, if you will, yeah. uh, that Congress passed. There's a direct relationship between the passage of that legislation and the almost eight and a half percent inflation that we're experiencing today. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, one of the major things that I would do in Congress is very much be of the mindset that any sort of fiscal stimulus has to be treated very, very skeptically. I mean, obviously, if things change fundamentally in the way that the economy is, you know, you have to be open to potentially, you know, using that tool. But right now, and even back then, you know, I would have made the argument that there are plenty of opportunities from an employment standpoint to be able to get back into the economy. And the economy was starting to pick up on its own. It didn't need that additional stimulus.
2: Right. That's what it really irks me about this whole situation. It seemed like such a perf- incredibly performative in that Joe Biden and the Biden administration just wanted to look like they were, and I, I've talked about this a lot within the context of COVID, the disease of something. They wanted to look like they were doing something, right? And obviously, if they could engage in a, you know, a giveaway to a number of political allies and patrons, then all to the better. But the notion is that the gov- is that the american economy needed this huge stimulus because we're under pandemic conditions however we had been under pandemic conditions for about 15 16 months at that time the economy had recalibrated to uh, to accommodate those pandemic conditions so we didn't need more stimulus people were still buying people were still transacting and so they they imposed a, a solution with that had no problem the problem was already solved it was just and i'd like to believe it was more than just you know payola to try to get lower income voters to vote for them because they were given more money than the Republicans but i mean i i'm not apt to give them the benefit of the doubt at this point i mean is that how you saw it?
1: hundred percent. And speaking of payola, there's another sort of payola situation that's happening in California or is mm-hmm. kind of in the process of happening. You know, with this massive inflation, we've seen gas prices go through the roof. I sure. think there was just reporting today that said that nationally, uh, there's no state that has gas at less than four dollars a gallon. Mm-hmm. Which I mean in California we'd be we'd be so excited to have four dollars a gallon, we're seeing six and seven dollars a gallon. Right. But A lot of the reason that we've been having these uh, obscene gas prices, obviously, there are macro factors uh, in terms of energy independence and foreign policy that play into it. But there's also a level of taxation that goes into it that a lot lot of people don't know about. In the state of California, every gallon, 51 cents of it, goes to the state of California. Over 18 cents of it goes to the federal government.
0: Mm -hmm. That
1: 51 cents is about to go up on July 1st. not down. There's an automatic 6% increase, and the state legislature didn't do anything about it to stop it. Now, Gavin Newsom has put in a proposal to say, hey, we're going to give everyone a $400 rebate. Um, The problem with that is multiple. So one, anytime we've had the state of California doling out money, we've seen major, major problems. Just look at what happened with the EDD fraud. Oh,
2: God, what a disaster.
1: So that's one big issue. But the other big issue, and this is what plays into the payola point you were making, they've timed those rebate checks to come out September or October of this year. And guess what happens on November 8th? The election. It's unbelievable.
2: It's so craven and so blatant. And it's like it's so condescending.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. The easiest way to do it would be to just suspend the gas tax for a certain period of time. Right. Then it's just it's targeted to the right people. It's anybody that is using gas Mm -hmm. now getting some relief from the government. But instead, they create this complicated scheme of a rebate program. Timed around the election, it's just it it, it boggles the, the the
2: the mind. It is boggles the mind to, it, that they believe they can get away with this level of condescending co- corruption. That they can be this obvious that they're buying people's votes and that they'll get away with it and prosper from it. But maybe they will. Yeah. So uh, our buddy Kevin Kylie, as we mentioned before, he has been, uh, floated out a number of proposals to to uh, suspend the gas tax. They've all been unsuccessful so far, but today. Uh, he tweeted out that he's start, starting to see a lot of Democratic legislators um, also get on board with suspension of the gas tax. Is there any chance that this happens?
1: Yeah, it's possible. And uh, Kevin Kylie's is definitely fighting the good fight over there. I, I hope that the pressure is starting to mount on some of the Democrat members uh, over there in the legislature. So it, it's, it's certainly possible. But I honestly, I wouldn't hold my breath um, mm. only because the establishment right now, I think, has started to coalesce around that rebate program for the obvious reason that it, it may help them uh, with the election.
2: God, just in no regard for what's best for the state whatsoever, just a pure giveaway. That's right. That's what right. Do, what does the gas tax? Okay, this is the question that so many people always come back for. We, we're always paying the most in California. Where does the money go? Where is the money from the gas tax supposed to go? What were we, what do they promise us that we're getting for this that we're not getting and why aren't we getting it?
1: Yeah, so it's, it's uh, primarily devoted to infrastructure development in the state. Mm-hmm. Um, and the problem with the way that the state is using the funds is really a problem that we see time and again across the various issues. The government has a very tough time building anything these days. I mean, just look at the uh, high speed rail project that was uh, supposed to be way more completed uh, at this point. Uh, anytime the government gets involved in the process of any sort of development, whether it's infrastructure, or housing, whatever it is, uh, we've typically seen that they've gone over budget and it's taken them way longer to do it. And I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that they're beholden to a lot of different special interests as they go into the process of of, uh, developing. Mm -hmm. And so if you talk to any private contractors that end up working with the government, they'll tell you the level of red tape, the level of, Requirements that the government puts on them in terms of what sort of union labor they have to work with, what sort of you know wage requirements and compensation requirements and benefit requirements, and there has to be of- The cost structure—it
2: really is the cost structure. There's a cost structure for everything that goes through the pipes of California government that just soaks up so much tax, some so much tax revenue.
1: That's exactly right. Yeah, That's exactly.
2: Right. Yeah. Um, to a similar point. Gavin Newsom announces a big budget surplus. Um, I think he's going to be gloating about this, despite the fact that budget surplus has nothing to do with him. It has to do with private businesses having very successful years in 2020 and 21. He's continued to bump up the budget um, to uh, to mimic and to mirror increase in tax revenue once again from the success and the prosperity of private business in California, which has done very well over the last 10 years. Um how, your reaction to you know his announcement of the surplus I believe the budget has now is most recently released budget is three times what it was a decade ago. Um, your thoughts as a prospective state, you know, uh, a state representative on the California budgetary situation, the surplus, is it fool's gold? Um, can it be done to can it be utilized to solve any of our problems, um, both theoretically or in theory, perhaps, but not in practice, because the people uh, that are controlling the purse strings have no interest in actually solving this problem.
1: Right, 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 right. So my reaction when I saw it was, look, we have such a level of taxation in this state that it's no wonder that, like you said at the top, we've seen a net negative migration out of the state. Mm -hmm. And incredibly enough, it's lower middle income earners that are leaving the state in droves, Mm -hmm. as well as small, medium sized businesses. So these are the very people and businesses that the status quo right now in California says that they're trying to protect, right? Mm-hmm. And rather than protecting them, these guys are voting with their feet and leaving the state as quickly as they can. And so my solution or you know what I would propose uh, to the folks in California and in the California legislature would be to use that surplus to lower taxation and to actually make our state attractive to folks yet again. I think we forget and we take we sort of you know take advantage of the businesses and people that are in the state and just assume that they won't go anywhere. And the pandemic has proven otherwise. People are more than willing to leave and go to Texas and Florida. And so we need to be able to compete with some of these other states. And right now, we've made it as unattractive as possible from a taxation
2: litigation. And, and they'll point to the surplus as some proof that that's not the case, right? That this somehow proves but it actually proves exactly what the point is, is that if you have a surplus, if you're generating this level of tax revenue, like you return the money to the people. You don't need taxes this high. The whole idea is that taxes, tax rates are this high because you need them in order to pay for the things that you need to pay for. You don't just keep on increasing budget just in, in, uh, uh, in response to an increase in revenue, yet it never occurs to them to reduce taxes at no point.
1: Right. Right, right. right, And the other thing is, you know, part of the surplus was also because of federal spending on the pandemic that mm-hmm. I think went unused. So when you're looking at the surplus, it's actually not even a real surplus. Uh, you may have just gotten a pop for this year. Um, but between that and the over taxation, I agree with you 100 percent that this is really an opportunity for us to give the funds back to the people and to restructure things from a taxation perspective to make it more attractive to stay and come to California.
2: Mm-hmm. No doubt. No doubt. Um, so your race, Alex Padilla, once again, I mean, I, I don't see anything notable about this guy. I mean, he seems like the most bland creature of the California Democratic Party system imaginable. He's not, you know, necessarily super progressive, but he, 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 but that would require him coming up with some sort of noteworthy idea in the first place, even if it was a bad idea. He doesn't seem to come up with anything. What is this guy doing? At, at, you know, not saying how did he become a senator? Has he done anything? Has he authored any legislation? Um, Would love to hear a little bit more if we're to look at a head-to-head battle between you and Alex Padilla, what that looks like and, and how you would approach that.
1: Yeah, so I agree with you 100%. I mean, there's no real major achievement, not just during his short time in the Senate, but also in his nearly 25-year career in California politics. Um, mm-hmm. When he was in the state legislature, I think one of his major achievements was adding calorie counts,
0: uh, <laughs> which... <laughs>
1: You know, fantastic. Great. Even when the L.A. Times was doing this fluff piece on Alex Padilla and, you know, talking about how he's the first Latino senator. And my gosh, isn't that so fantastic? Whatever. The major thing that they were talking about in terms of an accomplishment, and I kid you not, was the fact that he brought uh, Tapatio into the Senate cafeteria um, and added that to the menu. I mean,
2: ah, so hollow identity based symbolism. Great. Yeah. like We don't (laughs) have enough of that.
1: That's that's it. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And so uh, the results sort of speak for themselves. But, you know, he's he's unfortunately he's a convenient tool of Gavin Newsom. Uh, Padilla has been supportive of Gavin Newsom from even before he was a lieutenant governor in the state. Um, and so you know, it's not about competence. It's not about, you know, new, fresh ideas. It's really all about party loyalty and, you know, who can scratch each other's back? And that's exactly how Alex Fidia got this. And so his whole mandate has been silent. Let's not rock the boat. Let's not do anything. You know, all the while, our state has been going to hell in a handbasket um, between all the inflation, crime, homelessness, all this terrible stuff that's been going on.
2: And so how's the race shaping up?
1: So right now, uh, the main objective is to get to that second spot coming out of the primary. Uh, and so one of the things that, that people may not realize is that the primaries in California are structured in such a way where all the parties are now on the same ballot. And it's the top two vote getters that end up going off to the general election. So it could be two Democrats. It could theoretically be two Republicans, although that's not going to happen uh, in a state like California. Um, but it's, it's regardless of party affiliation, which is why for the past two Senate races in California, it was Democrat versus Democrat. So
0: mm-hmm.
1: Einstein ran in 2018. She ran against Kevin DeLeon, uh, fellow Democrat, and Kamala Harris ran against Loretta Sanchez, uh, who's a Democratic congressman. So I think what we're looking at is the possibility of the first Democrat versus Republican race for California Senate seat um, in about 10 years. And mm-hmm. that, I think, is a good thing for the system, again, because now you have kind of viable alternatives.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah.
1: Parties. But in essence, you know, I came into it because I saw the list of challengers and none of them looked particularly compelling or viable in the general election. Uh, and that's why I was very fortunate enough to outraise all of them this past quarter, which is huge as a first time candidate. And it just absolutely, you did it
2: you did that pretty quickly.
1: That's right. I formally yeah. joined the race in February. And by the middle of April, we were announcing that we had outraised the, the challenges the past quarter. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, when you look at it, we've got one person who just runs cycle after cycle and unfortunately doesn't get anywhere. We have another one who, um, you know, basically they, they just haven't raised the resources to be able to get to um, a good place. And unfortunately that's what's required to be a viable contender, especially against a massive democratic machine where you have millions and millions and millions of dollars being spent. Um mm-hmm. Drop
2: of a hat. Yeah. Yeah. And moving on to a couple of the, uh, you know, if you become a senator, hey, these are the issues that you're going to have to attack. I mean, uh, it seems like the United States is currently fighting somewhat of a proxy war against Russia via the Ukraine. Right. Yibon, we're funding them quite heavily. Um, we're giving them state of the art weaponry, and they seem to be fighting the good fight, although it's a little difficult to really get a grasp on. On uh, Clearly, Russia's performed less. Effectively than than people were expecting or that they had hoped for. Um, Then the question becomes: Okay, are they still going to be carving out little, you know, pieces, or let's call it substantial pieces of Eastern Ukraine? Um, Is there any chance that Ukraine could find a result here that would be considered a victory, et cetera, et cetera? Um, How are you know how are you seeing this issue being played out in Congress right now? It seems like uh, some. That there is a battle between a, a large contingent of senators who think that, um, hey, we the, we seem to be in a new war. We shouldn't be in it right now, although we support, you know, we morally support the Ukraine. This is not in America's uh, strategic interests, um, but m- most seem to be beating the drums of war and, and you know, seem to think that, okay, great. This is a way for us to take on an adversary um, and weaken an adversary without sacrificing an American troop. Um, would love your thoughts on the subject.
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, look. In general, I have been really disappointed with the foreign policy of the current administration uh, and Mm -hmm. need look no further than the pullout from Afghanistan or the fact that we're trying to re-engage with Iran on a disastrous deal and using Russia as our conduit to the Iranian regime. Like none of it, none of it makes any sense. Mm -hmm. Um, In general, I'm of the mind that we have tons of problems going on in the United States as it is, and we already have a ton of debt. Um, And so in general, my my philosophy is that we have to take care of things in in America and use taxpayer funding towards that. However, I'm also of the belief that America has a role to play on the world stage. Mm -hmm. Uh, And unfortunately, when we don't play that role, we start to see some major conflicts brewing all over. And yes, you know, I understand the argument of not getting involved and and kind of letting it play out, Uh, but to the extent that we can support outside of being directly involved in the conflict uh i think that can be a good thing and i say that mm-hmm. as i know that china is watching the situation very closely and they have a whole situation going on with taiwan as well um and with ukraine i think there is an opportunity for us to support them but you know going forward you know getting more and more involved i'd be hesitant to do that but for now i think it's it's good for the purposes of what america stands for on the world stage to have somewhat of an outside role um, in what we're doing.
2: Yeah, it seems to be, it's a bit of, you know, my view is it's a risk, right? It's, uh, you're, you are imagining that there is an off-ramp where either you are overthrowing Vladimir Putin or you're spooking him so hard that he, either Vladimir Putin is toppled or he uh, is spooked by a poor performance and kind of tucks his tail between his legs, goes back, rules Russia, doesn't cause everybody so much trouble ever again, and this has all been worth it. However, the risk is that either one, it does not escalate, or two, that you're just throwing money down a sinkhole and that Vladimir Putin is going to accomplish, uh, you know, some version of his original, uh, while at a higher cost, he's going to accomplish some version of his initial objectives. Um, he's going to continue to have quite a stranglehold over worldwide resources because, uh, you know, uh, of Russia's economy and how he's positioned it over the past seven, eight years. And you just spouted, you know, 40, 50 billion dollars down a sinkhole for no reason. And it's kind of uh, it is further alienated Americans who think that money is better spent here. Um, so it's a risk. It's a risk seems to be the, the risk seems to be turning out uh the bet seems to be turning out well so far but um i think we got to keep we keep in mind that uh uh the keep in mind that there's no shortage of ways for this to go wrong over the coming weeks and months and we'll have more of the prevailing narrative after the break Back to some local issues here and, you know, beyond statewide items, um, you're a Los Angeles resident. I've kind of said this is a make or break year for LA. We've got all the elections this year. We've got an attempt to recall the district attorney, um, who is part of a decarcerationist brigade, as we have mentioned. Um, the mayor's race, you know, well, let's, everybody knows the mayor's race, right? It, it is the showdown, mano a mano, uh, Rick Caruso versus Karen Bass, the outsider with more uh, kind of traditionally conservative or moderate leaning common sense solutions to crime, homelessness and taxation versus the creature of the democratic machine. Um but people don't quite realize that some of the other facets of L.A. politics are incredibly powerful. The city council and the board of supervisors. Um, these are our boards and, and organizations. You know, they, they control immense amount of budget. Right. And, you know, for instance, the board of supervisor also appointed the uh, county public health department uh, uh, staff. And that was uh, incredibly influential over how the city was run and how our lives were ordered during the pandemic. Um what have you seen from the, you know, in terms of looking at the composition and the actions of the, the city council and the board of supervisors, you know, what have you seen that, you know, may have fueled some of your dissatisfaction with what you're seeing in Los Angeles and where you'd like to see those, those races go.
1: Yeah, no. And of those ones that you mentioned, the County board of supervisors is arguably the most powerful just from a budget Mm -hmm. standpoint and what they're able to. uh,
2: Yeah, if you could elaborate on that, that'd be great.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So the County Board of Supervisors for Los Angeles um, gets the property taxes uh, and a few other sources of of revenue. And so they have a Mm -hmm. massive budget. And so when it comes to public health, that's that's within their purview. Um, But a lot of the work that we're also doing from a homelessness perspective uh, is also under county purview. And so Mm -hmm. right now we've had, in my opinion, a major imbalance. Uh, I believe right now it's four to one. There's one uh, Republican county supervisor uh, versus four Democrats. Um,
2: And there's one Democrat who sometimes votes with the one Republican. Uh, Janice Hahn, I believe, is, is relative on a curve, has been somewhat governed by common sense.
1: Right, 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 right. And and that's exactly what we need to be looking for in the candidates that are running. It's that sort of common sense approach because I would hope that the County Board of Supervisors with the massive budget that they have and the lack of outcomes that we've been able to get in this county, that they Mm -hmm. start to kind of look very, very closely into that budget and say, what's working, what's not working? And let's make sure that we've got our priorities on right. Mm -hmm. Um, From a crime perspective, I would very much look to see as a litmus, you know, who is supportive of the recall of George Gascon and who isn't. And at the very, mm-hmm. least, you know, when they're describing what an ideal district attorney looks like, what does that look like for them? Mm-hmm. What does ideal mm-hmm. sheriff look like for them? And granted, both the DA and sheriff are directly elected by the people, right? These aren't decisions by the board of supervisors. But we've seen right now that if one of those other elected officials isn't quite playing ball with their what they're calling the woke agenda, uh, mm-hmm. it ends up being just disastrous for everyone involved. And so we've got to make sure that we're getting common sense folks within the board of supervisors. I can't tell you how, how critical that is. Um, and same for the mayor's race and same for the city council. Um, like you said, the mayor's race is a critical one. We've had, unfortunately, a mayor um, who has really gotten nothing done and has only made these problems worse. Everything from the potholes and infrastructure issues all the way to the crime and homelessness that we've been experiencing. I mean, we both grew up in the city and it's, it's a disaster. It's staggering.
2: What do you think was the problem with Garcetti? Because he seemed like a reasonable candidate. He was good on the city council. I mean, I have my thoughts. What do you think went wrong with him?
1: So I, I think the fundamental issue is that when a politician has aspirations for higher goals, they end up being much more focused on that than on the immediate need to get the job done. Yeah, What they're essentially doing what They're trying to ingratiate themselves not with voters and residents of the city. They're trying to ingratiate themselves with the Democratic Party machine. Yeah. Because in their minds, they're saying to themselves, that is what's going to get me to a better place. Do mm-hmm. um, so You see that, for example, with Karen Bass. The only reason Karen Bass, in my mind, I think, is running for this uh, mayor's uh, seat is because she ended up getting passed over as a vice presidential mm-hmm. uh, pick by Biden. And so, again, this is where you start seeing some of this ridiculous inside baseball party politics working. And they said, well, you know, we couldn't give you the VP spot, but we're going to give you mayor of LA. Who are you, you know, Mr. Party boss, Mrs. Party boss, to be telling the state and the city, you know, who should be getting what position. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think that's the problem. And same thing with Garcetti, Um, you know, now his fallback is to be ambassador to India. And that's, you know, sort of a, a plum position that he may not ultimately get. Looks
2: like he's not getting it.
1: Yeah. But yeah. It, it, it speaks to the fact that when you ingratiate yourself with the party, they try and look out for one another and help one another. But, you know, results don't really matter.
2: Yeah. 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 So those here's an interesting question. I'm going to, you know, dispense, I'm going to put up my voter guide and telling people who to vote for and all the kind of more granular uh, races here in Los Angeles. But if you're, If you don't have a resource, if you're just a random citizen out there, how do you advise random citizens to bone up on this stuff, to get educated and make their own informed decisions?
1: Yeah, I mean, look, the biggest thing is just to look at the list of candidates that are running and to spend just a little bit of time going to their websites and seeing what their priorities are and Mm -hmm. the kinds of priorities that I would suggest that voters look at are exactly the issues that we've talked about here, right? Crime, homelessness, cost of living. These are the major issues that we've never really had to deal with in a generation, but now all of a sudden becoming massive issues that one has to deal with. And so, for example, with Karen Bass, um, you know, when she goes to a debate stage and is asked, you know, on a scale of one to 10, how safe do you feel in Los Angeles? And she says, I feel a 10 out of 10. That's a pretty clear sign of an out of touch uh, career politician. No doubt. Uh, So- that's that's one factor that I'd look at is what are their priorities in terms of issues?
2: And that you can glean their priorities. Ju- you can usually glean their priorities by doing the two minutes to go into the website, seeing some of the literature about them. It's not that difficult.
1: That's exactly right. It is right. within and
2: the grasp of every person out there.
1: That's right. That's right. The other thing that I would look at is whether or not they're a, a sitting city council member or it, basically, are they an incumbent or not? Yeah.
2: Or see, uh, see their prior position.
1: That's right. Yeah, that's right. Because right now, I think this is this race is all about bringing fresh, new, viable, thoughtful perspectives. Just not change just for change's sake, but actually bringing really good new people. Because clearly, this hasn't been working. Now, there are some exceptions here and there to that. Mm-hmm. There are, you know, a couple incumbents that may have been doing a good job, but on the whole, most of the incumbents have not been doing a good job whatsoever. And so, I think you know when you see that incumbency that's that's that should be a little bit of a red flag where you say you know what has this person actually been doing while they've been in office yeah and if not let's look at the alternatives
2: yeah and are, are they someone who's willing to acknowledge that there may be a problem or they someone yeah. who's going to deflect and divert because acknowledging what there was a problem means acknowledging that they didn't solve it in the first place yeah, Big yeah. so john um if you could tell us a little bit, you know, just about how people can learn more about, you You know, one, any just kind of more holistic message about your candidacy and how people can learn more about you or get involved in your campaign.
1: Yeah, no, I appreciate that. Um, I mean, like I said before, the reason I got involved in this race was because there really was no viable challenger to someone that's been involved in California politics for 25 years. And I think my perspective changed a lot when I became a parent. I've got two young daughters Mm -hmm. um, and through the pandemic and through sending them uh, into the educational system, I think my wife and I both realized that things are just not working in this state. And so that's the kind of perspective that I hope to bring a parent, husband, business owner in California, um, and someone that has advised governments in the past. When I worked in consulting, Mm -hmm. I was advising national, federal, state local governments. Um, and I've also served in the small business administration and department of commerce. So I come into this with an understanding of when the resources are spent correctly. These are the sorts of outcomes that we can potentially have, um, which is something that is very, very much lacking in our, in our status quo.
2: No doubt. Um, Yeah.
1: Yeah. But I would love for folks to visit the website. It's Ellis 4 Senate.com. Um, and and shoot us a line. Uh, the team passes along messages to me all the time. I love answering voters' questions, just having conversations. Um, and that's the other thing for anyone that's trying to learn more about the different candidates. Right now is a great opportunity to go to events, reach out to folks. If you have questions, you'll be surprised at how responsive candidates and their teams tend to be, because you know everyone is trying to make sure that voters are aware of who mm-hmm. they are. Um, and you know, I hope that for folks that feel inspired by the message and and uh, and, and agree with where I stand or, or even if they disagree with me, that they see me as someone who's thoughtful about the issues that brings in a new perspective, that they'll share the message with others. Uh, that's the best way to get get it out. I'm sure people have asked each other questions of I'm looking at the ballot here. I have no idea who these names are. Um, and that's where we can start to change things is if uh, if the message starts getting spread.
2: No doubt. And that's what I've been trying to encourage people here in California. And that, that ha- a message that has resonated is about focus and engagement is that you need to get engaged. I think if people woke up to some unfortunate realities that if you aren't engaged, the compound effects of poor governance over the course of five to 10 years start to affect people's lives. You can ignore it. You can ignore it for a few years, but eventually it catches up. And I think a lot of people are seeing it. And, it, you know, I think it's something that you noticed. And once again, while well, I was very impressed that you decided to act on it and have been very Forthright and communicative about it, and um, just John, you know, very impressed with what you're doing so far, and appreciate you joining us today. Best of luck on your candidacy. Um, we'll see how the next month or next few weeks play out before the primary, and uh, you know, if you can make that top two, we look forward to uh, to monitoring your candidacy and, and be talking with you again.
1: I appreciate it, Matt. Thanks so much for the chance.
2: So, John, thanks once again for joining us, everybody. This is the prevailing narrative. I am Matt Belinsky. Once again, you can listen and subscribe to The Prevailing Narrative on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening right now. Make sure to follow me on my socials at Matt Bolinski, M-A-T-T-B-I-L-I-N-S-K-Y. The Prevailing Narrative is a Cavalry Audio production in association with iHeartRadio. Produced by Brandon Morgan, executive produced by Dana Brunetti and Keegan Rosenberger. For Cavalry Audio, I'm Matt Belinsky.
0: Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh.